Hey, what's up guys? Welcome to the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel, the channel that helps believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life today. Today, we are going to be doing that in my favorite way, and we're going to be revisiting one of our favorite friends that we've covered time and time again, because I honestly do want to give people the benefit of the doubt over and over again, and I happen to obviously do a video essay on Stephen Verdict, and I thought, you know something, let's revisit Verdict one more time. And I'll just tell you, I have already watched this, so I kind of know where this is going to go. You you probably know where it's going to go, but here, here's my thing. The more people I talk to about you know famous pastors, popular pastors, people they listen to on like K-Love or on, uh, on podcasts or things like that, it, it just has to be covered that I think most of the time people listen to individuals and don't know how to properly exegete the scripture. So whatever they're told is what they listen to and learn from. And this happens to be the instance with Stephen Furtick. So I think going into this, obviously, we're going to do the three things we always do. We're going to see if he reads the scripture, we're going to see if he exegetes the text, and we're going to see if he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. All three of those things we're still going to cover. I think you all know at this point, if you are familiar with the sermon reviews, kind of my opinion on Stephen Furtick's preaching, but I think it's important to cover it over and over again, as well as a variety of other pastors, just so we can see Honestly, just what's what's wrong with it? I'm just going to be frank with you. What's wrong with it? I think Stephen Furtick is a great communicator, but a poor exegete. And I, I think we're going to be able to demonstrate that in this sermon. So without uh, you know further ado, let's get over to the review screen. This is going to be a review on the sermon. This is that day. Um, the sermon, if you want to watch it in its full, in its context, link in the description below. Down there as well is going to be our free PDF guide of our sermon review uh, PDF guide that you can use while you listen to sermons online or while you listen to sermons in your own church. I use it every Sunday for my pastor. I actually write my sermons uh, in a way so that, you know, it, it it fits within what I'm looking for in the guide myself. So I obey my own rules. But that being said, this sermon itself is an hour and two minutes. So that this sermon review isn't super duper long, I have sped this up to 1.5 speed. Again, if that's a problem for you, link in the description below. You can watch this all the way through at normal speed and maybe just pick up some of the comments I make through this. So that being said, let's go ahead and get going. Uh, there's a little announcement at the beginning. I didn't want to skip anything. We're going to go through the announcement. Uh, actually, I don't want to go through the announcement. <laughs> let's go right to uh, the beginning, about a minute and nine, minute and 12 in. Uh, let's let's do it. Happy New Year, Elevation Church. You made a good decision to get in the house today. I'm telling you. I'm believing this year that God is going to open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that we will not have room enough to receive. Of course, as we stand on the precipice of a new year, God, we thank you for what you've already brought us through. It's amazing, mind-blowing, absolutely incredible what you've done for us, that we stand before you, a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old is gone, and the new has come. As I stand behind this pulpit today, God, I thank you for all of the messages that you're going to preach this year through this ministry. I thank you in advance that these, your children, will have enough bread for every battle they face. I thank you for new songs from this house this year that will minister to people and become anthems for every day of their life. I thank you for all of the people who will be saved through this ministry this year, for all of the people who will be redeemed from their sin. I thank you for all of the addictions that will be broken this year because of your powerful word. I thank you for new opportunities for your people this year, new connections, fresh perspectives. I thank you for new relationships in their life this year. I thank you for the restoration of things that were given up on. I declare it, I believe it, and I give you thanks in advance. You're a mighty God. Do whatever you want to do. We give this year to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Somebody shout, it's headed my way. Put it in the comments, say it's headed my way. Put your name in the comments so God knows where to put your uh, DoorDash delivery. Wouldn't it be cool if God was like DoorDash? If you could track him and see where he was. But somebody say, it's headed my way. Give me five on that. It's headed my way. High five five more people say, you got a new thing coming this year. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be powerful. New thing, new thing, new thing. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Glory to God. I got a new thing coming. Yes, Lord. We wrote that last year. I've been trying to pause it for a minute. I'm sorry. So the music sounds really messed up at, at, at 1.5 speed. So you're going to have to excuse that. Sorry about that. I didn't know that it's, it sounds like, like terrible. So, okay. I did want to say something, which is why I was trying to pause it, is that at least he mentions, you know, freedom from sin and whatnot. That, that, he does mention that. He does mention that uh, at the beginning here. So that's, that's, that's good, right, that he's mentioned freedom from sin of something that, that's what he's praying for this year. So anyway, that's good. Let's see if we can get back into it without having any issues restart now. Maybe, I don't know. but I saved it for New Year's. I thought you needed it today. All right, we are upon the first sermon of 2024. You can't imagine the agony that goes into figuring out of all the different texts that the Lord would speak on this day, what would it be? Because I know that your heart is in a receptive place today and that there is a fresh faith stirring. So I wanna share with you from a prophetic scripture in Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah chapter 27. Okay, so we wanna to go to Isaiah chapter 27. Now, one of the things that I would say is as always, in case you're new here, anytime a pastor says, I'm going to be preaching out of this particular text, you want to go to that particular text. The idea is at least that way, you can see the context of that. You can write it down so you can see maybe, you know, if the pastor doesn't get into the context of what's going on in the text, you can go back later and read it yourself to see if it matches with what he said. Uh, here, though, we're going to go to Isaiah 27. And there's going to be a few things uh, new this year that I'm going to try to do more with you. You guys ask in previous when I pulled you on YouTube and on Instagram, like, hey, what do you want to see more of? And a lot of it was historical breakdown, exegetical breakdown, uh, more on screen. So we do have a screen we're going to we're going to go over to here in a little bit, work through the text. But let's let him go to the text first. Isaiah chapter 27 is where we're going to be. Very meaningful to me. And I hope you will feel the same way. A word that the Lord gave to his people long ago, but it speaks to us today. Somebody shout today. Today. Isaiah 27, verses 1 through 6. By the way, I want to say a huge thank you to our church who gave so generously in our year-end offering that you gave over $11 million to share the gospel, to heal the sick, to clothe the poor. That's absolutely amazing. I cry coming to church today, just thinking how thankful I am for you. You know, one of the things that is good about like enormous mega churches like Elevation is the um, the amount of money that it can funnel into causes within its community, right? I mean, eleven million dollars, assuming that is all literally going out of house and not to fund buildings and salaries, but eleven million dollars going into the community is substantial like you don't have like if that all goes to the you know the exp expansion of the gospel feeding the homeless taking care of local you know children uh, helping out the schools things like that like that's enormous and that's not anything to you know snuff your nose at for you how expectant i am for god to move in your life 
And I want to start this year with the prophetic word that God gave me for you. Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. Anybody got some stuff you need God to kill this year in your life that's been dragging you down? That's what. Le so, right away, I just want to point this out, right? He, he goes into Isaiah chapter 27. A passage that we'll see here in a minute is specifically about Israel's redemption from exile uh, that they've been placed in. And it's really pointing toward this great hope of a day, not just the, the Messiah coming, but the end of days in which there is no more wrath and there is no more sin and there is no, like, God's will has been done, right? And so... It's interesting, but this is very typically sort of a Furtick-esque type of viewing this, is that before we even get into the text, we've now made it about us, right? Do you have any Leviathan that needs slain? Um, and so now, instead of actually covering what is Isaiah talking about, who is Isaiah talking about, what is the Leviathan, we've automatically made, oh, it's like you've got stuff that needs slain, don't you? And we, we go directly to application versus working through through the text in a way that then leads us to a deeper, more meaningful application. And we'll talk about that as we go. Leviathan was. Leviathan was a chaos monster, a mythological figure. And many believe it represented Babylon and Assyria and Egypt, the enemies of Israel. But the truth is we all live with our own Leviathan, don't we? And the Lord promises that in that day, that whatever has you wrapped up and whatever has you stuck down in yourself, he will punish with his sword, his fierce, great and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent. Now look at verse 2. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire, or else let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. Let me give you verse 6, and then I'll tell you our topic for today. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit in days to come. I want to preach to you today a message. This is that day. This is. Somebody shout, this is. Shout like you're at a football game. This is that day. Tell your neighbor, this is that day. Other neighbor, this is that day. Say it again. Put it in the chat. This is. So you, <laughs> so you see what he's doing as far as, so now we've read the text, right? We're focusing specifically on in days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and the whole world uh, and fill the whole world with fruit. And then he says, this is that day, right? So what he's declaring is that this is the day that Isaiah ha is prophesying about. This is the day that, um, that, that Isaiah is talking about where the Leviathan is slain, in which the Lord, uh, if, if there was anything to battle, he would battle it, but he has no more wrath. Like, this is the day that the root, you know, Jacob's root has, like, he, Ferdick's point, his claim, is that this is that day. So now he set that up at the very beginning, 
right? Again, masterful sermon builder, but the exegete part of it is what we're looking at. Set it up and said, here is a prophecy that Isaiah set forth. He said, one day this will happen. And Furtick declares, this is that day that Isaiah was talking about. So now he has to build that out and explain through the scripture, hopefully, how that is accurate and true. So let's, let's see if he does that. That day, I'm breaking out. I'm going forward. I'm growing up. I'm moving into it. I'm walking tall because this is that day. In Jesus' name, you may be seated. This is that day. The perspective of Isaiah 27 is the perspective of an integrated faith, an integrated faith, not a fragmented faith. A fragmented faith is when you believe in God when things are good and doubt him when things are down. This is an integrated faith. Everybody say integrated. It means that in the process of moving forward in what God has for you in the days to come, you will have to make the decision to remain hopeful. When I say remain hopeful, that also includes leaving room for disappointment. So for grown-ups, believing in God means remaining in hope while leaving room for disappointment. That goes to every area of our life. Hopeful that you might have a good week with your family or a good meal with your kids, but leaving some room. Everybody say, leave room. That's what I tell the tailor when he takes my pants in. I say, leave some room in case Holly cooks really good over the holidays. Just leave me a little growing room. And I think that leaving room for disappointment, that's what I mean by integrated faith. It's really how our faith is sustained so that we see disappointments as doorways to greater faith, not dead ends. In case the first few years of your walk with God have been confusing to you, because at first things seemed to go up when you walked with God, and then things went down, and you thought that following God was always going to lead you up, God wants to give you an integrated faith. In case the first few days of your new year have sucked, and I thought about saying, have been spiritually challenging, but when it sucks, it sucks. You know, I, I, I just put it how you put it. This is like, this is the same old, same old. What we want to talk about today is a little bit different because we understand that it is our responsibility as Christian people to manage our expectation, meaning I've got to make sure that I don't let my experiences in life regulate my expectations of God. Write this down. I will. Now, the one thing that, again, I have to appreciate about Verdict is that occasionally he, he is, he's really good at making some points that are correct, right? This idea of knowing that as a believer, it's not always going to be sunshine and daisies is a good and helpful point um, for any believer to know. And I do appreciate the fact that he, he points that out for a new believer. Maybe it was really awesome at first and now it's down and you're confused. It's not always going to be up for those that are believers. It's not always going to be great. In fact, and again, even though I maybe would say it a different way than he says it there, um, disappointments are usually the places in which God grows his people into a greater faith because now you have to rely on him more. You understand that it's not about you doing everything or you earning anything. It's about relying on God who is in control of everything. So all of those points there that he just made aren't bad points. And I think you kind of have to give them to him. I, I know a lot of people might have might say it differently than how he said it, but the reality is he's at the core of it, he's right, that as a believer, you do have to understand that your experience doesn't dictate who God is. And so that point there is is right on. Now again, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what we see within Isaiah uh, or the text that Isaiah is talking about, uh, not directly at least. But 
it's still a reality within the Christian life. Will not, or say it out loud, whatever you want to do to reinforce it. Auditory learner, okay, let's just say it out loud. I will not allow my experience in life to regulate my expectation of God. That is a daily decision you've got to make. And I think that a lot of the damaged relationships in our life are because of unmanaged expectations. That we really started depending on somebody to do things for us that only God could do for us. We really started expecting things to be like the perfect little movies we make up in our mind of how things are supposed to go when we show up. And so the integrated faith that Isaiah describes is really beautiful because he says that there's two things happening. There is a fight. Everybody say fight. That's verse 1 of Isaiah 27. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword. Now, you don't have a sword if you're just going through life, strolling through your day. So there's a fight happening. And then in verse 2, it says, in that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. So let me point something out to you. There's a sword in verse 1, and there's a song in verse 2. But the sword and the song are happening on the same day. Okay. This integrated faith will make me get up in the morning and never say again, it's going to be one of those days. Because it's always going to be one of those days. I almost got discouraged before I came out today because my hair right there was flat and I couldn't get it up. And I was going, oh God, how am I going to preach if my hair's flat right there? Are you serious? You have the word of God and the spirit of God and you're going to have a bad hair day and get up in the pulpit without confidence. And I think I fixed it, but I'm still not really sure. So I'm kind of insecure as I stand before you. It's amazing. It doesn't, it doesn't take much to remove us from a hopeful expectation. My expectation is my responsibility. Nobody can ruin my day. I got a verse for that. Psalm 118, verse 24. It's the year 2024, right? All right. This is a verse 24 for you. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So if God made this day, nobody else gets to mess it up. I used to say to people when they send me a nice text, you made my day. I quit saying that because I figure if they can make my day by sending me a nice text, they can mess up my day if they send me another type of text. Now we want to get up every day this year and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. So it's the challenge, watch this, to remain in hope while leaving room for disappointment. I think our expectations this time of year could use a little HGH, Holy Ghost hormone, to get us on an expecting path that God has given me a hope in a future and an expected end, no matter what they did or didn't do for you, no matter who left or who stayed or who called. So just want to interject here. The one question we have to ask, and this is where I think some, sometimes we let pastors get away with preaching sermons that aren't actually rooted in the text that they're preaching from because they sound good, right? Everything he said up to this point, 15 minutes into the sermon, isn't necessarily wrong. There is this reality that um, you have to get up every day and say, my experience will not dictate how, who God is and how I interact with him today, right? There is, again, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. This, this reality of understanding that today God has set before me, God is in control of it, God is not absent from it, and I will rejoice because he has made it, right? There's this, there's that, like there's a reality to it. But when we look at the first couple of verses, let's go over to it real quick. The first couple of verses of uh, 27, what we see here is that uh, in that day, right? So this is some future hope, right? In that day, the Lord 
with his hand and great and mighty sword will punish Leviathan, the uh, the uh, fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So there's this understanding that the Lord is going to defeat with a sword the Leviathan, right? He's going to defeat the dragon of the sea, whatever this this creature is, and again, Furtick did mention that sometimes it's connected to like uh, a creature specifically. Sometimes it is uh, it seems to be a reference to a like a a power, like a king or a kingdom. Whatever the case is, though, right within the context of uh, what we're seeing here is that on that day, the Lord, not us, right, no one else, the Leviathan cannot be slain by any anyone but the Lord. The Lord is going to be the one that that does this. He's going to be the one that slays and kills the Leviathan, right? Now, there's also, again, to his point, in that day, right? So we have this, again, this future hope. This in that day language is this future hope we have. So in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. So who's keeping the vineyard, right? So we have to understand, again, this is, we're going to hear a lot of I, 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 you, you, you language. We're going to hear that all throughout this. I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. But what does the actual scripture here say? Okay. The scripture here says that the Lord is the one that is going to slay the Leviathan. It says the Lord is the keeper, right? He's the one that waters it. Let's see, <laughs> my iPad's messing up. He's the one that waters it. He's the one that takes care of it, right? So to protect it, that, that is his job. Day and night he keeps it, and that is what he's doing. Now, again, there is obviously probably, we can see what we read on. This is the garden or the vineyard is probably Israel, right? There's, a, there's some metaphor happening here, but he's the one that keeps it. He's the one... Uh, that protects it. Uh, and we'll get into the I have no wrath part here in a little bit. But I want to show you this, right? The language that Isaiah is using here is that the Lord is speaking. The Lord is the one that slays the Leviathan, not us. The Lord is the one that keeps the vineyard, not us. So that when we do talk about um, why can I have a future hope? Well, it's in the Lord. that He's the reason I have a future hope. It's not that I work up within me some sort of motivation to have a hope. It's that I, I look toward the Lord and know that he is the one that is in control. He is the one that slays. He is the one that protects. He is the one that waters. He is the one that sustains. It's all on him and he's the one doing it. So my job isn't to, uh, you know, do these things in my own power. It is a reliance fully on the Lord of this hope that I have in him, not just for the now, as we see uh, that Isaiah is talking to Israel that is in, um, you know, under captivity, but also this future hope of a day where there won't be captivity. Let's, let's get back to it, though, because I only tell you that because we've not mentioned any of that yet in the sermon. Back or who blocked your number? I have an expected end. And yet, as I walk through these days, I understand that my challenge is to remain. If you want to take notes on my message today, my first word is remain, because I want to challenge you to remain in hope this year and leave room for disappointment. And you're like, which one is it? I want you to do both. I want you to expect the blessing and accept the mess. In that day, there will be a sword, because everybody in here is fighting something. 
Everybody in here has a Leviathan. I might preach about Leviathan next week, a whole sermon on Leviathan. I might do it next week. Would you come back if I did? Would you make a hat about it if I did? Yeah, they know. But notice. I, I don't know what that's about. It's, it's one thing to appreciate your pastor. It, it, it's a totally different thing, I think, to borderline idolize him. That's just my take. That while the sword is fighting Leviathan, because everybody has a Leviathan and everybody knows how to hide it. It's a coiling serpent. It's a gliding serpent. You hide your Leviathan behind a smile. You hide your Leviathan behind new clothes to disguise the fact that I dragged old habits underneath new clothes. Some of us have new hair. Talked about a bad hair day. Some of us actually have new hair on our head in a new year. Yet notice this in the text. Notice this in the text. At the same time that God is dealing with the enemy, he commands you to sing about the fruit that is coming forth in your life. Now, I love the Bible because this gives me an integrated expectation of God. That there will always be a fight in my life, but there will always be fruit in my life. As a matter of fact, I learned the bigger the fight, the bigger the fruit is going to be, and the size of the fight is a preview of the size of the fruit. High five somebody say it's gonna be big, baby. Okay, so let's all chill out for a second. Let's go back to the text real quick. Is there any reference here that we see that indicates that? there is a huge battle taking place, right? Let me just take away all of this so we can look at it really clean and clear. Is there any indication here that there is some massive battle taking place? No. I mean, all we see here is that the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, is the one doing the punishing Right? It's, not, it's not a battle. What's very interesting is that anytime we see anything come against the Lord, it's not a battle. It's God's already taken care of it. Like You, you don't go against God. If you do, you get defeated. It's plain and simple. Right? There's no battle here. There's also no indication of fruit in the vineyard. Right? All we see, again, is the indication that in that day, a pleasant vineyard sing of it. I, the Lord, is its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day and night. I have no wrath. I would have had thorns and bristles to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. But there's no indication of fruit here at all. All we see within the text is this, the Lord defeating the Leviathan and the Lord taking care of the vineyard and the the fact that if something did come against it, he would destroy it. But the only, the only, it's not even like it'd be a battle. He just says, you know, I'm going to lay hold of my protection. They should probably make peace with me if they come against it. That's all there is. Now, the one thing we are going to see about fruit and the thing he's probably talking about is right here in that day, or I'm sorry, in days to come, we have Jacob shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. But this is a very specific wording about Jacob and Israel. Like this is very, 
very particular. Sorry about my lines that are scribbly there, but this is very a very particular prophecy about Israel. Not this is not about you or me, right? That's not that's not what any of this is about at all. And so it may sound like very inspiring to say the bigger the battle, the bigger the fruit. But that's not based in this text. And really, it doesn't necessarily based in any text. There will be battles. Sometimes there will be great fruit that comes out of it now. And sometimes that fruit doesn't seem to happen until glory, right? We have, we have the hope that Abraham, for example, looked at, but he didn't see until later. There was a hope he didn't get to realize. And so in Hebrews, we see that the great heroes of the faith knew that there was a future hope, never got to see it, but now we get to realize it. There, there's, yeah, there's just an, a big issue about putting something into the text that it's not there. I'm going to preach today. I don't know what y'all are going to do. Shall remain. He talks about Jacob. He talks about Israel being planted and bearing fruit, having root and bearing fruit. And I wonder, are you rooted in the right thing as this year begins? And I came to ask one question of our global EFAM and our local campuses all around the world. What will you do with your 24? I think we're all a little humbler about our New Year's resolutions after the year formerly known as 2020. Every preacher I know was up preaching about vision, 2020 vision, and then just completely blindsided by the fact that the Lord didn't give us a prophetic word that we would be looking at empty seats all year preaching in our empty buildings. So all the sermons are humbler in the new year. All the plans are a little bit moderated, mitigated, modulated. I found a verse for that too. Proverbs 27.1. I put this one in the King James. Check it out. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. So when I had you shout, this is that day, shout it again. This is that day. Some of y'all said that in lowercase letters, no exclamation point. This is that day. You're, you're very deep. So you're like, what do you mean by that day? I was just reading the Bible because as I said, in that day, the Lord's going to fight your enemies. And in that day, you will sing of a fruitful vineyard that day. You know that day you dream of? There are many of you today who are dreaming of a day. Say, I'm dreaming of a day. If you don't talk back to me during the sermon, you get a flat tire when you leave to go in the parking lot. We've got some guests. I need to explain the rules. Say that day. That day. And so we have an expectation that God is going to free us from certain things this year, that God is going to deliver us from certain dilemmas this year, that God is going to provide for us. An expectation is great as long as it's integrated. Because I think the the danger of having expectations about what God is going to do. You know, 2024, God's going to do more in 24. I'm leaving the shore in 24. <laughs> I'm going to get a stronger core in 24. <laughs> you want another one? <laughs> Something I've never seen before in 2024. My ceiling is going to be my floor in 2024. I'm not going to be poor. Um, while we say that and while it's good to envision that, and I'll be honest with you, some of the things that I'm seeing today in my life are the result of a vision that God gave me at a time when I couldn't see anything like what I'm seeing today. I believe in that expectation. I think the danger we should talk about as you move into your new year and what God wants to do through you is that sometimes your expectation of the future can become your excuse right now. And I'll break it down to a phrase that I heard, and I'll use Elijah to give it to you. When he was very little, we were taking Easter pictures as a family, and of course our kids just love taking Easter pictures because they're the pastor's kids. They were fighting, they were, they were angry, they were despondent, and Elijah finally, like after having to change outfits a few times, this is a legendary line that he said in our family. He said, I hate 
Easter when I'm the pastor. So let's break this down. He said, one day when I'm the pastor, we're not even going to have Easter. I'm canceling Easter. He was like five, so don't judge him like that. Oh my God, he was five. But check this out a five-year-old's perspective. One day when I'm the pastor, one day when, one day when. Have you ever been a victim of one day when syndrome? Okay, so he's going to go into this one day when thing as is like a whole other point for him. So let's review what's happened up to this point. I just want to be very clear, right? So there's this this building that he's done in which he sort of entered in knowing it's the new year, went to Isaiah 27, read through one through six, immediately made the Leviathan like your problem, the thing that you need defeated, immediately kind of piggybacked on the on the this idea that yeah, there are there are going to be things that you're going to have to fight, but you also need to at the same time you're fighting know that there's a hope in the future and you're going to, you know, fight the battles and have a whole lot of fruit because the harder the battle is, the bigger the fruit is, right? So this is basically up to this point. And he's using basically you know, analogy to go back and forth between the Leviathan, which he has already said is like, yeah, this is somewhat connected to probably Babylon or Persia. And then he's also admitted that the fruit bearing is, you know, Jacob and Israel. But he says, yes, but you have a Leviathan that you need to fight to. And Jacob and Israel are the ones that are going to bear fruit. But you also bear fruit in your battles as well. All this so far has been very much us centered, right? Now, there's this great opportunity to talk about the reality of the passage of the already not reality of what Jesus has accomplished, right? So we're not to the day yet where, you know, there is, he has no wrath, the Lord has no wrath, but we are to the day where there is no wrath against the believer because Jesus has taken that wrath for us, right? There is this hope we have, not, not that all of our problems go away or that everything happens that we want to happen, but because that the Messiah has come, the Christ has come, right? He's, he's reconciled us to the Father. So we have that hope. That's not necessarily the hope that he's talking about here. He's talking about the redemption of Israel, the fact that they're going to get out of captivity. They are going to go forth and they should flourish in all the nations. This is the whole take root uh, that we see in verse 6 and um, the, fill the whole world with fruit. Like there's this reality that God's people will go into the world and fill it with God's goodness. This is something we see repeated throughout the Old Testament. You are God's people, go into earth and f- be fruitful and fill the world with God's teaching. And this is the prophecy that he has, right? Is that one day God will defeat the Leviathan. He will take his garden. He will, he's, that he's already watering, already planting, and it will take root and go forth throughout the whole world. And we see now as believers the realization of this in Jesus, that he has come, the Messiah, the promised Messiah has come. He's defeated sin and death. One day he will ultimately defeat sin entirely, and he will make a new heaven and a new earth. So we have this hope now with this anticipation of a hope, a greater hope in the future, and there's this reality we could really talk about here, not only the hope that Israel has, but us on the other side of the cross now have in the fulfillment partially of this. But we haven't talked about that, right? This is the thing that I, I, would, I would say that oftentimes there are lots of preachers that will do 90% like application and 10% actual biblical exploration, right? Actually exegeting the text. 
So we can't say that Stephen hasn't read the text because he has. We can't say necessarily that he hasn't given us a lot of context, though he hasn't given us hardly any, but he's given us some. But the rest of it has been entirely application for us now. And it's not that, again, like I said, that anything he said hasn't necessarily been accurate. There is a future hope we have. There is a hope that we can get up every day and hope in God because we know what he's done and is doing. There is a hope there. But what about for those that don't know Christ? What about those that are having a hard time, right? And need to understand, like, why can I have a hope in this God? Right. So far, all we've gotten from Stephen is mitigated expectations, which is a weird thing because basically he's saying hope for the best, but know that it may not happen. Right. Whereas what we see within the scriptures is you have a future hope regardless of anything good ever happens to you here if you're in Christ. This is why, again, persecuted saints in other countries have a, often a much deeper and better theology than us here in America because they know that every day could be terrible, but that doesn't matter because their future hope is in Jesus and that gets them through every day. Um, anyway, that, that's where we're at. Now he's going to go into this whole nother point that he's going to make out of this phrase. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing too good right now, but one day, one day when I get these kids out the house, the problem I have with that plan, one day when I get the kids out the house is that 20 years ago, you were saying, one day when I have kids of my own, and now it's, it's shifted to a future stage where you think you'll have more space and less stress. Let's do another one. I'm going to start a business one day when I have the right partner. I used to laugh when teams would come to see our church and they were starting their own church. And the pastor would pull me aside and say, hey, I got a gift, I got an anointing, I got to call and start a church, I want to reach people far from God, but I don't have a team. Where do you get your team? And I would always make something up. Oh, well, you know the Build-A-Bear store? Well, I got to build a ministry team store. And I went down there and I found the right amount of achiever and doer and the right amount of dreamer and I put a team together. Where do you think the team came from? The same place Jesus got his team. You find the people that God has placed in your life that are imperfect and you make it happen with who you've got. Now, if you are expecting a stage in your life when the perfect people will come into your life to help you figure out your imperfect life, if God sends perfect people in your life, you should send them away so they stay perfect. Because the moment they get tangled up with you and me, they won't be perfect anymore. Did, did you ever do the one day win thing? Well, I'm going to get in shape one day win. One day win what? I'm going to do the diet one day win. One day win what? I'll tell you what happened to me. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. One day I saw in the mirror. I don't know how you see. Now, this is something I'm going to do, right? This is not going to be like a public link. Basically, it'll be a link that will only be in the description of this video. But the first time when I was watching through this video, I got to this point and it became pretty obvious that if I cut out the biblical references that were here and just had like the stories and the motivation, um, it basically was like one of those, you know, motivational conferences you would go to that tells you how to be a better guy or, you know, how to be a better businessman or how to be a better husband. And so even those people like occasionally use like God or Jesus in their talks, but altogether it's basically just motivation. Like there's not a lot of difference between a Ted talk pastor and a, like just some sort of goo, like business guru. So down below, I say all that to say this down below, there is going to be a, an edited video where I've cut out everything, every reference that Stephen Furtick in this sermon says about the scripture or something and left in just the motivational parts. And by and large, 
you would not know the difference if that was just the video that came up, that it was a pastor and not somebody just trying to motivate you in the new year, right? I, again, the sermon's not a whole hour long because there's quite a bit that is cut out, but it's still substantially long enough and very much sounds like a, um, like a, a motivational sort of conference speaker. I don't think you're, you maybe, maybe you don't have time to go listen to it. Maybe you do, but, um, if you do, it's a very interesting listen. So 45 pounds that you've gained all at once, but it was like a flash of revelation. It was like a road to Damascus to me. I walked by the mirror after being married to Holly for 18 months with my shirt off. And I said, why didn't you tell me this was happening to me? And why did you contribute to it with your cooking? I said, I'm going on Atkins. So that's the diet I knew. And it involved bacon and I like bacon. So I got to lose his belly, but I got to use bacon to do it because I'm not going to be counting macros anytime soon. And Holly said, great. That's great. We could go on a diet uh, next week. I said, no, I'm not eating another carb. Start right now. And I didn't. We went to Wendy's that night. I donated back the bun to the homeless ministry and just ate the patty. And I did that over and over and over and over. And she thought that was so strange. She said, you could have gave me time. We could have shopped. We could have hired a nutritionist, but I knew too much to have to give a nutritionist money to start doing what I could do today. Now I'm telling you one day, one day when I have more time, I'm gonna write a book. One day when my wife starts acting right, I could really, I could really be a great businessman if my wife would believe in me. One day when she gets the vision, what if she doesn't need to get the vision? What if you need to show the discipline? Somebody say one day, one day when? One, one day, I'm telling you, Pastor Stephen, I'm gonna start giving to the church. One day when I, one day when I manifest all of the riches, I know that I know that the day is coming. God has told me I will be a millionaire. I will fund the kingdom. I will send apostles into the earth. One, and one day when I get this business right, if you won't do it with ten dollars, I promise you won't do it with millions. I promise. Because it's going to be more zeros. This is going to make you throw up even that much more when you give it. One day when, and I have found myself, now I know this New Year's message is not the shoutiest New Year's message, but I think it could be a sustaining one for you. If, you. if you make a subtle shift, and if the first point of this sermon is remain in hope, but leave room for disappointment, because there will always be a fight, and there will always be fruit, and sometimes you have to really allow the fight to take its course to see the fruit come forth. If the first word is remain, the second thing I want you to do this year is reduce. Reduce. And again, this is not a weight loss seminar. And I know that reduce is not a juicy New Year's word. And I know that we want God to add to our lives, and you should. I want you to have more influence. I want you to have more happy moments. I want you to have more laughter. I want you to have more peaceful sleep at night, more hours of sleep. I want you to be able to see more places and create more opportunities for others and yourself. But at the same time, I want you to experience more. I want to point out to you that in the text I read, God did not say anything to Israel about years. In Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, he says, in that day. Verse 2, in that day. Now, it's very important to understand here, again, and I don't, I would imagine Stephen knows this. The, the words that are used in particular passages are, are purposeful, right? I mean, so I, verse Isaiah is talking about a, a future reality, okay? He's telling about a future day that is coming. So it's, not only, and again, this shows my ignorance because I should, uh, I should have looked this up, but he does tell them how, how long they're going to be in exile. I can't remember if it's before or after chapter 27, but he does tell them it's going to be 70 years. Um, so there are times that he gives them. Again, I can't remember if it's before or after, but I, uh, no, 
Is it Jeremiah? Jeremiah tells them. I'm sorry. See, that's where I got this wrong. Jeremiah tells them. The point being, the wordage of prophecy, because it's a prophetic word here, is in that day, it's just talking about a future hope. It's talking about a future, a future time. So when we're talking about days, it is just a future time. It is not a day as in like today is one day. It is just a future time that you're unaware of. That is way out there, right? And so he's going to go into uh, talking about like specifically like today is your day. And I, I know, I, I hope, I know, I know that he knows. <laughs> like surely He's been preaching long enough. He's been to Bible college. He's been to seminary. He knows this, that this is not a day as in today day. This is a future hope, a future reality, a future time. Um, but we're going to take this word and rip it out of its prophetic sort of meaning and now make a point about, again, us. Verse six, in days to come. And I wonder, are we stressed, discouraged, defeated, and lacking momentum and victory in our life? Because when I said, what are you going to do with your 24? You thought years. The real answer to the question, what will you do with your 24? Is not about a year called 24. It's about, this is the day the Lord has made. When I woke up this morning, I had 24 hours of opportunity deposited into my account. And I can sit here with you and dream about all of the amazing things I'm going to accomplish for God this year. I could sit here and advertise to you all of the amazing possibilities that could happen in your life this year. More in 24. Leave the shore in 24. Strengthen your core in 24. And all of that that I say about 24 is wonderful and abstract, but it falls into the category of one day when. So round about June, I'm going to have my beach body. So round about December, I'm going to have some of these debts paid off. So round about three years from now, my family's going to be back together. Round about 10 years from now, my kids are going to college. I believe in long-term vision. I think it's all amazing, but I think this one day when can be a trap to keep you focused so much on the years that you don't do with the days what you can do with the days. Isn't this what Jesus said? Why do you worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Let me ask you a question. If you're anxious, are you anxious about today or are you anxious about Wednesday or are you anxious about Wednesday three weeks from now? Or are you anxious about when you retire, when you're 75, you're 17, you've got time. There's days between here and there. You know how much peace it'll bring you to recognize the revelation of a day? Here's the revelation of a day, that the grace for the day is in the day. The grace for tomorrow is not in today. The only thing that is in today for tomorrow for you is anxiety if you don't put it in God's hands. And Jesus said, sufficient is the day. Give us this day our 15-year bread. He doesn't even pray for 12 months of bread. I'm saying have a plan. I'm saying have a strategy. I'm saying have a financial advisor, but you got to do that today and waiting on a time. You remember when we thought there was no need to set up online giving back in 2006 because nobody was giving online, but we had to set it up that day for this day. Now I think 93% of giving is online. 98, 98% from nothing to 98%. But there's something in your life like that right now. And you go one day when I get more money, I'll learn to manage it. That is a syndrome that affects people of faith even more than it affects atheists because we will blame God for that. We'll say, I'm not doing it. God's going to do it. We'll say, I don't need to take care of it. God's got me in his hands. And he does. In that day, the Lord will fight Leviathan, but you and I have a responsibility too. So I want us to make... So this is important because he is pointing out something that I think um, does 
get often pushed off, especially with this idea, often with the people that will say, God's got it. I don't have to worry about it does come along with the baggage that he just mentioned and rightfully pointed out. Right. So again, I'll say it a thousand times. I have a, I have a real issue with his exegesis of passages, but he is right in some regards of the things he says. Often it's the right message, wrong passage. Almost all the time it's the right message, wrong passage. So all the things he said about taking responsibility are correct. Again, that applies. That's just basic principles, right? That's just basic principles of how God has set things up. You are responsible for doing things. The point, again, of Isaiah 27 is not that you have to take responsibility for yourself today or you have to plan well or you need to work at it because it's not just going to happen. Like all of those things are true. You should work at it because things aren't just going to happen. You should put the work in because things aren't going to do themselves. You should take responsibility. All of these are correct things. That's not what's happening in this passage. And that's the whole point, right? If, if we were just going to get up, right, and give motivational messages that had scriptures attached to them, fine. That, that's a thing you can do. I wouldn't call it a sermon, right? Um, but it's a thing you can do, right? People do need to hear this, right? And this is where I think we have this real breakdown within the church of true discipleship, because a lot of the things he's saying should be said by somebody like in a Titus two sort of way, an older man or older woman that's mentoring you and teaching you. Like those are the people that should be in your life. There are people in my life that are much older, that are much financially wiser, that have given me a lot of tips through the years, some of which I don't need anymore because I've applied them and now my finances are, are pretty solid, right? There's older people that have been through situations that gave me advice when I was a lot younger, and that has been helpful advice. Now that my kids are a little older, there are people that have been through this stage in my life that are discipling me, that are giving me uh, a lot of helpful advice here, right? So this is where within the church, right, we lack this. So whenever somebody like Stephen gets up and starts giving this really good and really practical advice, we call it preaching or teaching, and that's not what it is, right? What what he's doing sounds good because the advice he's giving is good, but that advice should be coming from somebody within your local fellowship that is older than you and is uh, older in faith than you and probably also in years that can give you some advice and mentorship and discipleship and help. What should come from the pulpit, what traditionally has come from the pulpit, from the teachers and the elders of the church, is the teachings of the scripture to then apply to your life in practical ways, but from the scripture. So what we have here, if we're going to look at, you know, Isaiah 27, we have a really deep, amazing hope that can be found in the fulfilled promise of God through his people. The application of that is that regardless, right, regardless of what is happening, we can have hope in the Lord because he is the one that defeats the Leviathan. We can have hope in the Lord because he has fulfilled his promise in watering and planting and caring for Jacob and Israel. And the fruit of that 
through Jesus, has gone out through the entire world, continues to go out through the entire world through believers that have been transformed by the gospel and are using their time, talents, and treasures to do that. Oftentimes, in situations that are not favorable to them, but they are doing it for the kingdom of God. And so what we see in this passage is not only the redemption of Israel, which is the primary purpose of this passage, but on the other side of the cross and the other side of what's happened as they've come out of the dysphoria, as they've uh, went in, as we get into the New Testament and see the gospel proclaimed in Jesus's life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the gospel going forward, we can see the fulfillment of this and take hope in the, in the reality that God does what he said he was going to do. And we can take further hope and have further faith and be more secure in who he is. So that regardless of what happens to us, right? And this is where the application goes. Regardless of what happens, we can trust in him, right? This isn't about like me putting things off, right? There is a place for everything he's saying here. I don't want you to hear me say like anything he's saying is like wrong because it's not. And this is where it gets tricky, right? Because the things he's saying aren't wrong, but they're not in this passage, they are, they are things that should practically be coming through you, to you through other believers in a discipleship manner that are lived out in front of you and beside you. Because it's really easy like, to get pumped up when you hear this. Right. There's a there's a, a, a podcast that I listen to on finances and this guy will sit down with people and go through their finances. They get really pumped up in that moment. Yes, I'm going to definitely follow this plan. But when he does follow ups, they don't. Why? Because they're not actually people. They're, they're very pumped about the plan until they have to implement the plan. So you can be really pumped about I'm not going to put off anything till tomorrow. And then you go out and you put it off. But you've got a little cushion because Stephen's told you that you need to mitigate your expectations. Yeah, leave room for disappointment. And you're like, all right, well, I failed one day. And you try to, again, none of this is done in your own strength. This is all done in the reality that Christ has paid it all. And therefore, I then do, there, go live out my life in light of the gospel being, right, his servant in his kingdom doing the best I can. So I'm not doing it for me, right? I'm doing it for Jesus. And it's not performance-based. I'm not doing it because I get some sort of reward. I do, I'm doing it because I'm transformed by the gospel and I want to glorify and magnify the King in all the things that I do. So this one, you know, one day win, I can get pumped up about doing something for me, but one day win, like, it's just... It's so motivational, but it's not founded in what we actually see here in Isaiah 27. A shift. Are you open to a shift this year? If you're open to a shift, just nod your head at me a little bit. Wiggle your pinky. Wiggle your pinky toe. Just do something to get in agreement with me. Somebody shout shift. Come on, pronounce it well with the F in it. Say shift. Because I want your year this year to be full of fruit. I want your year this year to be full of abundance. I want your year this year to have heavy branches. I want rain to fall on your relationships, your resources. So we're going to shift this. That's what we're going to do. Touch somebody. Say, I'm going to shift this. I've been stressed out about the next week. I'm going to break it down and reduce it because really what I'm worried about has nothing to do with where I am. It has to do with where I think I'm going to be. And I don't know what tomorrow holds. So God has not given me a promise concerning this year. He gave me a promise for this day. And the promise is not for tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow holds. So I want you to go from one day when that thinking. How many have done that before, by the way? One day win. Put it in the chat. One day win. One day win. 
when they win. This is the most powerful thing I could teach you to help you set up for this year, for what God wants to speak, for the disciplines you want to pass on, for the things that you want to see set straight in your life. I want you to go from one day win to one day win. From one day win. Because Isaiah didn't say anything about years. He said, in that day. Again, within the context, this is a prophetic word for the future. This is called anagogical, I'm not going to say it right, anagogical hermeneutics. It's any hermeneutic that points toward a future hope, which is exactly what's happening here. Not a literal day here, but a future time when the Lord defeats the Leviathan, when he protects his people, when there is no more need for wrath, that future day of glory, when all sin has been defeated and the Lord sits high and lifted up and magnified and we glory in him because he is the one worthy of all praise and glory. Like that's the day we're speaking of. And we have a taste of that now in Christ, in his resurrection. But there's another coming, another coming where a final judgment will be laid down and all evil will be destroyed. And there will be no more tears and there will be no more sorrow and there will be no more evil. And that day, that is our future hope. And so maybe you'll get a one day W-I-N win today. And great, I guess, if you do. I mean, that's what we're hoping for, right? Good days every day, great. But there's going to be days more often than not, especially, I mean, just being around and pastoring people and just being friends with people that you're going to have a lot more days where you don't have a WIN that you're going to have to be reminded of the one day win, like that future hope, because that's all you can hang on to because you ain't had a win and there ain't no wins coming, but you can have a hope in the future hope of Christ. And this is what really aggravates me about sermons like this is that Stephen is an amazing communicator. Somebody that's been to, to, to seminary to study the scriptures and to teach them well, like he has. But when we're reducing a text about the future glory of God in the defeat of sin and death and sorrow, and we make it about a W today, it's so belittling to what is actually being prophesied by Isaiah. In that day, this is your year to win one day at a time. And if we get a one day win on top of a one day win, 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 one day we'll be telling our kids one day win. I made a decision to get a one day win. Now, see, you don't get it. You're going to be telling somebody the story one day and they're going to say, how did you get out of the depression? And you say, well, one day when I decided to call a counselor and have a conversation and begin to open myself up to the fact that the Holy Spirit can use people and I need to admit some of the things that I'm struggling with and I need to fight this Leviathan and get some leverage on this addiction and start to open this window so the light of God can come streaming in. I got a one day win. Hey, everybody get ready to celebrate because you came to church today. Guess what? I don't know if you'll be here at Easter, but you're here today. I won this one, devil. Let's go ahead and celebrate the baby step. You made it today. 
I got that one day win. I got that one day win. I've been living in one day win. Uh, I get more resources, then I can do it. Uh, when I have more clarity, then I can do it. Uh, when I know enough, then I'll share the gospel with somebody. Uh, when my kids start acting right again, then we'll be a peaceful family. Not one day win. Just get a one day win. Just don't cuss them out today. How many can do that? Make some noise if you cannot cuss them out today. I do want to make a point to this, and I don't want to make it a bigger point than like it actually is. But it is amazing to me. And it's probably just because I grew up in like a holiness movement. But it's amazing to me that the number of Christians that are that are basically okay with cursing, like they're fine with it. And I know this is sort of like a regional thing, like, right, there's some countries that it's never been taboo. Um, but like, it's just interesting to me how many, how many pastors of churches, they won't, they won't curse on stage, but they'll a hundred percent curse behind in the green room. Like they have no problem with it. And that's really strange to me. I don't know if you know that, like, I don't want to break some sort of weird vision you have of some people, but there's some well-known pastors, uh, well-known Christian music artists, (laughs) um, probably some just not very well-known pastors that you know that are totally okay with letting a, um, some curse words slip. And so like when I heard this, and again, I'm sure I'll be called a Pharisee. It's like, whatever. I don't, I don't even care anymore um, about that, <laughs> about being called that. But when I heard that, I thought, man, he's not joking. Like he's, he's not joking about Jay, just don't cuss him out today because that's the thing that I don't know about Stephen Ferdy personally, to be honest with you, but I know the people like, I know Perry Noble, like he's friends with Perry Noble and Perry Noble has cussed before. I think in the sermon, maybe I could be wrong about that. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Like I would take it back in a second if I'm wrong, but I'm almost positive that that's happened before. I think Mark Driscoll has maybe. I think, I think he was known as anyway, it's, it's been a long time since I read that book that referenced that. So I could be wrong about that too. But the point is like, it's just weird that we're okay with, such little holiness from some, from some spiritual leaders, quote unquote, within the church that like his win for the day is the expectation that this entire room full of people that most of which would call themselves believers, probably almost 99% of them would, that his advice is, Hey, just make it one day without cussing somebody out. And it's a win guys. It's just the bar is so low on holiness. <laughs> Crazy. But we should dream big, Pastor Stephen. My kids will be missionaries. Great. One day when you haven't cussed them out enough days or killed them, they might be a missionary. But it's going to take, do you see the power of a one day win to get to a one day win? Glory to God. I feel happy preaching my own notes. Okay, so he's all he's all he's talking about there. This is not uh, freedom from sin. This is not sanctifying a sanctifying life found in Christ through the Spirit. That's not been mentioned. If you boil down what he just said, it's just habits. It's you formed a habit that turned into a habitual thing that you do. You get up one day, go to the gym. Get up the next day, go to the gym. Get up the next day, go to the gym. Now you go to the gym all the time. It's a habit. It's not some transformed life in Jesus. It's not freedom from sin. It's not sanctified a sanctified life lived in Christ, right? That we've mentioned none of that. I'm not saying he doesn't believe in any of that. I'm just saying that's not what he's preaching. He's preaching habit forming. 
Like, you understand that, right? He's preaching habit forming. And, and there's erupting cheers. I wrote this in my own notes and I'm receiving it. I got that fresh bread for 24 Elevation Church. I'm going to feed you this word from God till you're strong enough to fight every Leviathan in your life. And God said, You don't fight the Leviathan, the Lord does. When you sing about a fruitful vineyard, I'll slay every wicked thing in your life. How many know while you were singing today, you were winning? While you were. That's not what he said. He didn't say, If you sing in the vineyard, I will slay the Leviathan. He's going to actually slay the Leviathan whether you sing or not. The garden's going to be fruitful because the Lord tends it, not you. But yeah, keep cheering. We're worshiping today, you were winning. Because this is how I fight my battles. This is how I get my mind right. This is how I set my mind on things above. This is how I overcome my darkness. This is how I cut my gliding serpent. This is how I walk in favor. This is how I bear much fruit. This is what I'm doing. With my 24, I was watching basketball one time 10 years ago, and the commentator gave me a whole sermon. The man shot the ball. There was like one second left on the shot clock, and the guy who shot, he missed. Everybody say he missed. But then it hit the backboard, and 10 years ago in the NBA, if you got the offensive rebound after missing a shot, the shot clock would reset to 24 seconds. You don't get it. So it means you missed that one. But if you get that ball back in your hands, I believe God brought somebody to church today so you could get this ball back in your hands. I know you missed some in 23, but this is 24. Somebody shout, this is 24. Put it in my YouTube comments, this is 24. Announce to your neighbor, this is 24. This is 24. And when he got the ball back, the announcer said, he gets a new 24. I thought I would announce to somebody who came to church on the first Sunday of the new year, which happens to be 2024. He woke you up this morning. He started you on your way. He clothed you in your right mind. He gave you the breath of life. You got a new 24. You got a new 24. You got a new 24. 24. 24. What's it for? 24. I'm going to shoot this thing. in days to come. You mean I got to break this thing down? I'm not drinking today. I'm not looking at it today. I'm not hooking up with them today. I'm not complaining about it today. Because this is the day the Lord has made. Maybe you can't even face today with confidence. So let's break it down a little more. Say, I got a new 24. What if you open your mouth on when you wake up tomorrow and say, thank you, Lord, for a new 24. And you know what really frustrates the devil? If you missed the last shot the last day, if you really screwed it up the day before, and you wake up and you see that shot clock in your life, ooh, God must not be done with me because I got a new 24. Yeah, I got a new 24. So I'm taking the shot today. Everything that I did that wasn't like God is covered by the blood of Jesus. I got a new 24. So let's talk about that real quick, right? So when that came up, that was really, that's really interesting because there is reality that that is true, right? If you are a believer, you are covered by the blood of Jesus. Now, there's two ways to look at that, right? There is a way in which, you know, when Paul talks and says, should we keep on sitting then so grace may abound? And he goes, surely not. We shouldn't be doing that, right? 
And so there's that way, which says, well, I mean, I really sinned yesterday, but it's all good because it's covered by the blood. And having the mentality of not being broken by your sin. Again, not this idea that like you're living in fear. And this is where like we really need to teach this better because when you don't teach it well, whenever you screw up and fell, you live in fear constantly because you think God's coming after you to crush you like a mean guy with a big bat, right? You're like, oh no, God, God's some big meanie waiting for me to screw up if it's not taught right. Or the other direction is I screwed up, you know, hey, me and Jesus are bros, so it's all good, right? Both are distortions of how repentance works. Whenever you fail and fall, which you will, right? It should not be a deliberate sin though, right? It should, there, there are sins of purposeful things that you're like, you know, you shouldn't do, but you do it anyway, right? That's a purposeful sin. God told you don't do it and you did it anyway in disobedience. And then there's sins of uh, omission, right? That you, you did and you weren't even thinking about it and you did it, right? So there's things like sins of commission or that you, you know you shouldn't do, but you do anyway, like sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Like, you know you shouldn't do that, but you do it. And now, like, what is your response to that? Is it, ah, oh, God's got me though. Man, we messed up again, but God's got me. Don't worry about it. Or is it a real repentance of, Lord, change my heart, change my desires, you know, convict me, right? Show me a way that, you know, there are, there are, there are ways to, I've advised couples before, like if you're living together and you say you're Christians, you need to figure out a real quick way to not do that. Okay. And so there are ways that we demonstrate our repentance before the Lord by not going into situations, right? He mentioned drinking before, right? There are definitely people that struggle with alcoholism, but you can't tell me if you go to a bar and then fall again, that you didn't know that was going to happen. So there's this, this, this idea of like, before the Lord, I go, God, like, give me the wisdom to avoid the sins that I am so prone to fall into so that I don't choose them over you, right? That sense of commission. I've done something I knew I shouldn't do, but I did it anyway. And there should be a repentance that comes with that. Not, a, oh, God's going to beat me over the head, but a real repentance of I sinned against a holy God. Like we're not bros. He created everything. I am the creature, and thank God for Jesus Christ that I can have re, I can have reconciliation with the Father. But that doesn't mean I get to flaunt it around and just do whatever I want to do because it's covered by the blood. And so there's this real balance here. Yeah, you're covered by the blood, but you don't fragrantly, you know, sin all the time just because it's covered by the blood. You don't abuse the grace of God just because because He offers it. And so this is where like He really had the opportunity. Again, we're not even talking about. Isaiah 27 anymore. Just forget that. But this is where he had the opportunity to dig into that a little bit more. Yeah, you fall. Yeah, you fell. You're human. But the, the idea is, are you doing it on purpose? Because if you're doing it on purpose, you are, you are abusing the grace of God. Versus if you're doing something, maybe you're just tired and you're mad and you let something slip, right? It wasn't intentional. It was a sin of commission or omission where you didn't even know it was coming. Like you snapped at your kids or your wife or somebody at work or like, it's just, it was things you didn't know was, was going to happen, but you in a situation where it happens. In sense of omission, they're far more apparent to us because we didn't mean to do them. And here they are in our face, which is right. As soon as that happens, we have the opportunity to step back and just apologize and repent to the people we've sinned against right away and repent to God and go, Lord, help me be, again, be wise in how I manage my time. If I'm tired and I'm snapping at everybody, Lord, help me manage my time well, so that doesn't, I'm not in a position where that happens so often. So anyway, 
I'm not going to belabor the point anymore, but the point is there are a sense of commission and omission. And he had a real opportunity here to talk about that. But instead he said, hey, yeah, yeah, what you did yesterday is under the blood of Jesus, which is true. But let's dig a little deeper into that. Was it purposeful? Was it accidental? How'd you handle it? There's a whole lot more in that than simply being like, it's all good because it happened yesterday, but today's a new day. When he said in that day, listen, when he said in that day, in that day, and then in verse six, he said in days to come, I realized the way we're going to be where we want to be at the end of 24 is 24 at a time. Mm. I feel God on this message. I don't even want to do my second two points because I feel God right here. Mm. He left you here because there is fruit still to come forth from your life. That's why you got a new 24. Once in a while this year, you're going to have one of those days. Not a bad hair day, but an all hell breaks loose day, and it's 7.30 a.m. So if you can't just break it down to the day, break it down to the breath. Next breath. Next breath. He said, Israel will bud and blossom and bring forth fruit. You know how you bring forth fruit and bud and blossom? One breath at a time. You can take the next breath and the next. I googled before I came how many breaths does the average person take? Again. He's, he's literally talking about habit building. Like, I just need you to know that. He's talking about habit building by using a text that talks about how, I mean, it's right here in verse 6. In that day to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. We are talking about the hope of the kingdom of God, and we have melted it down into you forming habits and making it from one breath to the next and one day to the next. We've taken the great hope and glory of the King of Kings, filling the whole earth through his people because they have a hope in him, even in times when they are in exile. There is a time foretold in a day to come when the Lord will slay the Leviathan, will he will take care of his people. And as he takes care of his people, they will blood and um, they will root and blossom and fill the whole earth. And we've turned it into one day to the next is what we've taken it to. Taken one day. It said between 17,000 and 30,000. I figured somewhere in the average is 24,000. So look at me, children of Zion. If 24 hours is too much for you to face, you got 24,000 breaths to reset. You know, I, I was praying. I was praying one time before I preached. I prayed that that moment would be a reset. For everybody who came in the room that day, who all week long has just felt like, I can't, I can't breathe, I can't, I can't move. I can't do it. And the Lord says, in that day. It's amazing how we can be in a day that God gave us and not recognize it as a gift. You ever notice that? I guess that's my third R, recognize. You better recognize. If you don't recognize it, you'll regret it. We went to Atlanta to watch Graham wrestle last weekend, and it was so crowded in that gym. And it was, As a matter of fact, it was so wonderful to watch him wrestle that I just looked at Holly and I said, one day we'll look at these crowded gyms with dirty, sweaty wrestling boys filling the air with the fragrance of athleticism and knee pads and wrestling shoes. And looking all around, I said, we're going to look back and say, those were the days. So why not just shift it, Buck, and say it right when you're in it? These are the days. Somebody say, this is that day. God brought you here. Don't you ever let the pain or the pressure make you forfeit the grace of the day. That's why I stand here sometimes. I'm not pausing right now because I don't know what to say next. I'm taking it in. This is the day. 
This is that day. You understand? I prayed that this church would happen. God built this church. To see this many people gathered, to have this level of ministry influence, to be able to preach to your life is something that I saw from age 16. One day win. And then you're in it. That's 100% true, what he just said there. Now, again, I don't, if you watch it if you want to watch it. It's not like a critical critique of Furtick, it's just his life. There's a Making of the Minister, Stephen Furtick, that I made where I really deep dived into Stephen Furtick's life, his past, his ministry, all of his influences. And I'll promote it here for the fact that I think it is helpful for you to understand why he preaches the way he does. And why for me it's a little disappointing that he preaches the way he does because he started off like not necessarily like super exegetical in the word, but his early messages were much more Jesus-centered, much more Christ-centered. And I'm not saying he he doesn't preach Jesus now. I mean, at the very end of the sermon, he's going to give an altar call. Like, like he he still talks about Jesus, but this is so much more self-help you and a lot of that comes from and I don't I, I really wish I would have brought it out more in the video essay but he goes to a therapist pretty early on in his ministry career and you can see the effects of therapy on him in good and bad ways the therapy seems to have really helped him deal with like self-doubt and just insecurities but a lot of the therapy seems to also have creeped its way into the sermon prep and how he preaches and that's why so much self-help see this is my this is my theory. This is why there's so much self-help in his sermons is because he's gained so much from therapy. I mean it was an example he specifically used earlier. He's gained so much help from therapy that he's trying to share that help with other people in the way that he knows best to do, which is which is like speaking in front of them. And so it's my running theory that I think I have pretty good proof from just from looking at his life, that he got a lot of help from therapy, but it also greatly has influenced his preaching to the point that his preaching is very self-help-esque in its nature. And I think a lot of that is rooted in his own therapy that he's gotten um, and affected how he preaches. And you don't recognize it. What I want you to understand about every day you will have this year, and just 24 at a time, I'm going deeper next week. I'm going deeper next week because the Lord is really using this to penetrate somebody's worry. Somebody's just out of balance, and God is bringing you back to it right now. And by the way, this word will not last you till next January. You need daily time in the presence of God. Clap your hands about it. Yeah. 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 So, so we recognize these moments when we're in them, and we say, wait. This is that thing. Now, it's hard to know it when you're in it. So that's why the fourth thing I want to give you is to get you to reframe it. Look at verse 6. I think this one was the one that spoke to me the most of all of them because it sounds like God is talking about two different people and two different processes. Thank you, Jesus. It sounds like he's talking about two different people and two different processes. He says, in days to come. Now we've gone from one day to multiple days, from the present circumstance to the future promise. In days to come, Jacob will take root Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Now, he's talking about the nation of Israel, from whom the Messiah came, that blessed the whole world and took the gospel even to the Gentiles. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. Watch the application. He says, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom. And you know what I'm learning more and more about these years and seasons and paths that God gives us? Is that you're going to have both of those kinds of days, and you are going to feel like both of those people. See, Jacob and Israel are not two different people. In the Bible, a man named Jacob became the father of the tribes that would be the nation of Israel. 
And when God changed Jacob, he changed his name. He said, you used to be called Jacob, but now your name is Israel. Jacob means deceiver. That's who Jacob was. Israel means prince with God because he struggled with God and with men and overcame. Is that not a picture of what it feels like to be you in any one given day? Doesn't it depend what somebody thinks of you on what day they meet you on? How many of you have Jacob days that still happen in your life? Is there one honest person in the whole church? I need to zip up my jacket. I feel exposed with all of you fake people. Have you ever had an Israel calling but a Jacob day? Where it just feels like a total flashback, a total relapse? Now, I could be wrong here. Again, I'll fully admit that. I don't think that's what the text is saying here. So when we're talking in verse 6, let's go over here real quick. When we're talking in verse uh, 6, and it says, in the day to come, right? So we're referring to, again, this future day that we've seen twice mentioned before. In the day to come, Jacob, which is the, the, the person that they would have known Jacob by, by his name, right, shall take root, right? So there's this idea that Jacob is taking root. Now, again, this entire thing is very baptized in metaphor, Okay, there's a lot of metaphor. We got metaphor running through this entire thing, especially with the garden narrative. But one day Jacob shall take root, and Israel shall blossom and put forth uh, shoots. So there's this connection here where Jacob, right, the person, takes root, and out of that root taking Israel, the people that came from him shall blossom and put forth shoots. So it's what what. What Ferdict is about to do is say there's Jacob moments, so this is back when he was a deceiver, and there's Israel moments after he's uh, had an encounter with the Lord and, it's, and it's cha- the name change. And so he's going to try to do some sort of dichotomy here between, well, there was a before time and now there's a now time, and this that's the big difference here. That doesn't seem to be what's actually happening in the text. What seems to be happening in the text is this this particular reference to Jacob as the person and the people that came out of him. So Jacob taking root and the people that come out of him, the people of Israel shall then blossom and put forth shoots. That's what I'm talking about because out of Israel, the people putting forth shoots, then there is a filling of the whole world with fruit. Again, this is this, the going forth of God's people. Uh, The same, the same thing they were told to do in the other old Testament passages, go forth. They're supposed to go into the world and spread the message of their God to other nations and other tribes and tongues. Um, and so this seems to be the same sort of the same sort of direction they've been given, they're being given again. Um, so I don't think what he's saying here is 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 exegetically accurate to what's happening. I'm not saying that factually he's wrong again about Jacob. Uh, the name change, uh, how he acted before. Like none of that I think is factually wrong. I think it's a misapplication of historical fact onto a prophecy. And when we ignore hermeneutics and hermeneutical lenses in which we read things through, we can easily misapply things to them. And I think that's what's happening here. I would be more than open to correction though. If, uh, if you've studied this well, uh, let me know in the comments. I could totally be wrong a new name and a new nature do not automatically give way to new habits. So I want you to notice that he says, Jacob will take root. Verse six, Israel will bud and blossom and fill the world with fruit. One of them is going down. One of them is going up. I will have some down days this year. 
I expect that just like I expect to be blessed. I will have some days where I can barely get out of the bed. In fact, some of us might have already. I would just like to note that if he is correct, which I still don't think he is, if he is correct about the, the duality here that he's bringing forth, he takes the duality and then makes it another analogy for you. Even though, even if he is right within the context of the passage, still doesn't apply. And he had one and we're just getting this wonderful year started. I will have some down days where I can't find one thing to feel good about, but I will not allow the down days to define me anymore past this point. Let it be written. Let it be done forever and ever. Amen. Just because I have a Jacob day doesn't mean I don't have an Israel purpose. What are you trying to say, Ferdy? Don't let the down days fool you. The down days are the days where God is getting you grounded so that when he brings you up, y'all aren't here to give him glory. The down days exist so you appreciate the great days. Again, that is true. There are days that you suffer through that root you in Jesus so that you can sustain the storm later. That's not untrue. That is 100% true. Is that what the text is saying, though? So do not let the devil tell you for one minute. Oh, it's just going to be one of those years. Oh, it's just going to be one of those days. I want you to reclaim your day and let the enemy know that even the down days, somebody shout, even the down days are working my root system so that I will be ready for the fruit God wants me to bear. Do you believe that? You got to reframe it where you say, oh, it's one of those days. It's always one of those days. It's a growing day and it's a gross day. The roots are in the soil, in the dirt. That's the gross day. And then the fruit is coming forth and it's growing. Which one will you focus on this day? I promise you that this is that day. Don't be surprised when the biggest fights come at the moments of the greatest fruit. They come in the same day. You are in a great day. Somebody shout, I'm in a great day. And in days to come, my roots are going to grow deeper. My fruit is going to stretch farther. I believe that whatever you're going through right now that you would not choose, God will use in your life to produce fruit that you cannot even imagine with your mind in accordance with Ephesians 3.20. I believe that on the days where you choose to believe, oh, this is a root day. This is not a fruit day. I can't feel God today. But he's with me today. This is the great integration of your life. Quit saying it was a good day, a bad day, a good week, a bad week, a good year, a bad year. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose. See again, like I just want to keep pointing out the reality that what he's saying isn't necessarily bad or wrong. Right? There's there's correctness here. This is why I would say same thing I said about Tim Ross, though I maybe was wrong about Tim Ross in this regard. Uh, but anyway is that there are people that are better podcasters. I mean, obviously Tim Ross is better is a good podcaster. Well, a popular podcaster. I don't know. Anyway, there are people that should be podcasters and authors and not pastors. There is content much like in this sermon that will uplift you and will encourage you and isn't necessarily incorrect given certain biblical verses, but those people, even though they can write well, aren't necessarily pastor material. And I think we very much confuse that in our day and age with our sort of uh, commercialization of the American church, is that we have people that we want to encourage and inspire us instead of actually preach us the Word of God, like accurately. Because again, I haven't heard one thing he said that's necessarily wrong, like given 
a verse that you could pull out of somewhere else. But that's not what this passage is talking about. Not at least very specifically, like in a very 3000 foot view, perhaps in part, we've sort of touched it. Everything he said would be better in a book or better in a podcast. And I think we have a lot of pastors like that, that are better podcasters than they are preachers. And that's not, that's not like shade on them. It's just that the gift set maybe is communication, but not teaching the word of God. Does that make sense? There are a lot of really good communicators, but not a lot of good teachers. And we have not done a very good distinction in that, I don't think. So much to the point that some people that hear that are going to take a real, like they're going to not like that I said that about verdict because they've, they've learned a lot from verdict in certain regards, but have they learned the scriptures, right, in their context from him? That's all I'm saying. Ye this day whom you will serve. You got a new 24, baby. And y'all are clapping like y'all are at a golf course, and I'm talking about a basketball analogy. You got a new 24. You got 24,000 breaths today. Doesn't God deserve at least a few of them to praise him with? You hadn't opened your mouth all year to praise God. Do it now. Thank you, Lord. And I'm going to get this one-day win. You won today. You won. If, even if you kick the cat when you get home, you won. You came to church today. I mean, don't do it, but if you did, you got this word today. Every time you hear the word of God, it's like seed being sown into your heart. Are you good ground? God gave you a new 24. God gave you another year to glorify him. Are you good ground? And while we're waiting for one day when, God's saying, no, just win one day, one breath. We can all do that. I didn't tell you to run a marathon this year. I said, one day win. Walk around the block tonight. One day win. Read one chapter of scripture today before you go to bed. Isaiah 27. I already did it. I'm ahead of you. Preacher. I read it to you. You read it by yourself. One. This is your year. You know how preachers say, this is your year. I want to say, this is that day. Now, what year you're going to be in, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go on my YouTube this week and finish this message for you from the basin. Okay? I got more I want to say. I can't get it out right now. But more than that, can we build some consistency in our lives and in our patterns this year so that we don't put God's house like a if everything else gets done, I'll show up to church type item on our list? Trees don't fill the world with fruit that way, and you won't be filled with peace that way, and you won't be able to make your mark that way either. The Bible says that God will guard you day and night, and he will water you consistently so that you bud and blossom. But you've got to be planted in the right place. To all of you who are planted in this ministry, I stand in agreement with you this year that this is that day. I don't know what job you're going to be working at the end of the year. I don't know who is or who isn't going to be on your favorites list in your phone. I don't know what will or won't be hurting in your body this year. But one thing we know, we got a new 24. See, we could have ended it with, we have a good and great Savior. We could have ended it that way. Not you have one more day. It's you have a good and great Savior. Like, there's, there's, there's an odd choice of words to use. Like we've had multiple times to glorify God here and not just to pump you up. And I don't think it's just a, a difference of how we're saying things here. Like he, you just, you have another day, you have another day. And Jeremiah three twenty one says this, I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Give me verse 23. 
Because limitations three. Because limitations three. Because I promise this in the Bible. Thy compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Put your hands like this to God so He could give you the ball. Stand up on your feet. Get ready to take this shot. You got a new 24. This is a bounce back moment for you. This is a rebound Sunday for you. We don't need a New Year's resolution until we get a rebound to realize He gave us this day. Thank you for this 24, God. Thank you for this fruit that will come forth. Thank you for these roots that have grown down deep. Thank you that our roots have weathered the storm. Our relationship with you is still intact. Our hope is still built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Say, I got a new 24. See, there's points here where, like, you know that there is some sort of substance under here, right? I don't, I, I don't know. Some people just say it's lip service. I don't know if it is or isn't. It doesn't seem like it. Like, he does seem to understand that your hope is found in Jesus only, but he rarely says it, right? He had to quote an old hymn right there for, for him to say it. He had to quote an old hymn for it, that your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Like, there were so many opportunities to say that through the whole sermon. But we've just talked about habits. We've talked about uh, a new 24, just making it to the next day, just making it to the next breath, and not doing so with this hope in Christ that we maybe can't see now, that we're hoping for to experience later, but in day-to-day -day life stuff. And I understand the need to appeal to that because a lot of people are going through some really hard times. But those hard times are going to vary, not only between people, but this entire year. So regardless of what variation you're going through, you need to hear that your hope should be built on Jesus Christ. And your hope can be built on Jesus Christ if you are in him. And being in him means following him. It means repenting. It means following. Like, again, none of that saves you, but this is what the outpouring of repentance is, is this following after Jesus. <sighs> And we haven't mentioned that hardly at all. I think we've talked about, we've heard sin once. We might have heard repentance once. We've mentioned Jesus a couple times. Now we are going to go, this is about done. We are going to go into a prayer. Typically I wouldn't cover this, but it's very interesting what he says here. So I want to talk about it. And I offer you this day, Lord. This is the day you have made. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. The Lord is saying that for somebody, this is the day of your salvation. This is that day for you to place your faith in Jesus. This is that day for you to make a commitment to be a follower of Christ and receive his grace in your life. Right now, I want to lead you in a prayer. And wherever you're watching from, if you're in a building or you're watching online, it doesn't matter. The Bible says that a man named Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was passing his way, and he climbed up in a tree to see Jesus. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, and a short man who was at a disadvantage and in ill repute. Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. Today, I'm coming to your house. I believe Jesus is passing your way right now. This is that day. He wants to come into your house, your heart, your habits, your life, and give you a new hope and a future and forgiveness of your sin. Right now, we're going to pray a prayer out loud as a church family for the benefit. Okay, so there, I want to do that before we do about the I want to talk about what he just said before we get to that we're going to pray as a church family. So there is a mention here, I mean, cl a clear mention of you need Jesus in your life to have his grace, have forgiveness of sin, and we're going to pray a prayer right now for that to happen, for this to be the day that you do that. So there is a tie-in, 
right? To let this be your day. You have a new day today, use it well, just do it today. And so there is a tie-in here that's not entirely, uh, like you just can't ignore it. He is mentioning sin and grace and Christ and needing to be in Jesus. He mentions all of those things. And so that is good, right? That is, you don't always have that in a sermon. Now, I do want to play, uh, you know, the, the cynic here and say that we haven't really fully explained why that's necessary, though. Because if we listen to the entire context of the sermon, which we have, which is why we do full sermon reviews, which is why we're an hour and 35 minutes into this, even at 1.5 speed, because all we've heard is like, you know, one day, one day at a time, one day at a time, one day at a time. Oh, and you need Jesus for this too. Is that it's basically been like alcohol is anonymous with a little sprinkling of Jesus here at the end. Like we've talked about habit forming. We've talked about a future hope. We haven't really talked about heaven or uh, reconciliation at all. We've just talked about very basic life principle stuff up to this point. And I'm, I'm not negating the fact that it's good that he's bringing up sin and uh, needing to have that forgiven here, because that's great. But do the people understand why that's necessary up to this point? Or do they think they're signing up for something that then gets them like all this self-help stuff that we've talked about up to this point? That's my, that's my only concern. We haven't really explained God's grace that well. I talked about that before. What you did yesterday is covered by the blood. We haven't really worked that out. Um, and here we're sort of interjecting rightly that you need to be in Christ, but do we understand why, Right. I can tell you, you need to join this thing, but if you don't understand why, or if you have misconstrued ideas of why it's important for you to do that, like, are you joining for the right reasons or understanding why you're doing it? Um, now, again, on the back end, maybe they have people they talk to after, and that's explaining, but why not just do that on the front end? Is my thing. So anyway, they are going to repeat the prayer together as a church. Now, he says he, they do this for the benefit of people that may be uh, nervous about doing so. First, there is no sinner's prayer in Scripture. Secondly, there is no precedent within Scripture that tells people that are already saved to repeat a prayer to make other people more comfortable about repeating a prayer. So I have to say I'm glad that he's bringing up the need to, to, to find remission of sin in Jesus and to follow Jesus. But what we're about to do where the whole church repeats the sinner's prayer together is a little bit more than problematic. Instead of those who are coming to God, or coming back to God is a rededication. And if you pray this by faith, the Bible says that by grace we are saved through faith. God will hear you and he will save you this day. Today is the day. Repeat after me. Heavenly Father, today is my day of salvation. Today, I give you my heart. I believe you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sin. I believe he rose again to give me life. I receive this new life. This is my new beginning. On the count of three, shoot your hand up if you prayed that. One, two, three, online, let us know right now. I'm receiving Jesus. I'm receiving Jesus. This is my day. This is my moment. This is my turnaround. This is my moment. This is my day. This is my turnaround. Let's give God great praise in the house. All right. All right. Hallelujah. This is that day. And look back on that day and say, that was the day I decided. Make some noise if you're glad you came to church today. This is that day. I will put part two on my YouTube for you this week. Okay, so there's like two minutes left. We're not even going to cover those because we're just, I need to end this. Um, so 
what we have, right, is we're going to go through the three, three things we cover every time anyway, and then I'll discuss a few things here as I close it up. The first is, did he read the scripture? He did read the scripture in part, uh, one through six. There's obviously a lot more verses in that, uh, in, and it actually explains a lot of what he did read further if you read it. with It gives some context to that. And so that brings us to the next question. Did he even give us any context and culture as exegeting the scripture? And that's a big no. We didn't get any at all. And then did we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? We did mention Jesus. Again, I'm not going to belabor the point what I said about he did talk about people needing to be in Jesus and have their sins forgiven. But we didn't preach the gospel of why that's important. About why your sin needs to be forgiven, why you need to be reconciled to the Father, what that means if you don't, why it mentions in this verse that he has no wrath in this day to come. Like, why are those things important? We didn't discuss that at all. So we mentioned Jesus in a very basic repeat this prayer type of way. And I'll end with this because this is like the fourth or fifth Stephen Furtick sermon I've done. These are basically copy and paste at this point in which they are 90% application for you and 10% actually what's being said in the scripture at best. And as I've said before in the link below, you'll see the sermon, if you eliminate all of the Jesus stuff or all of the scripture and leave God in because a lot of the self-help, motivational, better life, better man, better business people do interject God into their talk. So I'm going to leave that in. If you just take out the scripture part, this sounds like a better you seminar that you would go to. And that's the problem. A sermon should be incredibly different than a, a better you seminar. And though Stephen Furtick is a really good communicator and can clearly get people pumped up and says a lot of things that do line up with scripture, when he goes to a text, I have very rarely seen him actually exegete the text in a way that is faithful to what is being said. There was a lot of opportunity in this text to speak about God's faithfulness, about Christ as Messiah, about a future hope and glory, about God's final judgment and victory over sin. We had a lot of opportunity to talk about that here, but instead we talked about habit forming and better days, and a better you, and one more breath, and just get through it. And that, I think, is an issue. Let me know what you think below, and I'll talk to you next week.